G'day everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of the Beyond 90 podcast. My name is Cheryl Downs and I'm your host. We've got an amazing gang as always. A very special guest today, we have Sarah Walsh. So I'm super excited about that. We've also got Eric Subijano and Dale Root. So I'm also excited to have the guys there as well. Welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. Thank you particularly Sarah. The guys are always here, they're our mates. But yeah, great to have you on board, Walshy. Thanks for having me on. I'm very happy to be here. Look, there's probably no one in, in the world or at least our world that doesn't know about Sarah Walsh in the role that you do now. But as much as you describe yourself as a Matilda at heart, and I think that's what it says on your Twitter profile, you are so much more than a footballer and your journey from where you were in playing football to where you are today as one of the most influential women in the game, I think is amazing. And I think, you know, it must take a lot of courage to stand up and do all of that work and put yourself out there because it must be a bloody hard job. Is it a bloody hard job or or does it balance out with being a bloody fun as well? Do you know what? It's what a privilege. Um, And thank you for those kind words. Um, Oh, I yeah, haven't look, finished. <laughs> There'll be more. <laughs> I've just been able to extend my football career, really, um, to be able to, you know, get up in the morning, every morning, and think about football and think about, um, you know, how we're going to improve it. You know, I'll, I'll use Tony Gustafsson's um, phrase of one day better. And to be honest, that's how I approached my football career. I always felt like, uh, you know, to use a better phrase, I was renting the jersey just for a period of time and, you know, I was given an opportunity and in a lot of ways a responsibility to leave it in a better shape than I found it. And, you know, I've really been able to kind of use that thinking in my role. So, uh, you know, I think I've, I've got this role for a moment in time where I'm going to do my best with it um, because I do feel a lot of responsibility. Maybe that was just with my upbringing, but it's uh, it's a, something I don't take lightly. And, um, you know, obviously I get to enjoy the journey as well. So it's been just over eight years since the last international game that you played on the 19th of September 2012, which was a friendly against the United States. Since in that eight years, you've just made such a terrific contribution to football. Have you played any sneaky games in between then? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I have, particularly, um, you know, closer to, to when I retired. I think my knee was in a little bit better shape and now it's a bit of a, a risk reward. I go through the process of trying to think about, you know, risk reward here. If, if I could be on crutches next week, um, you know, what what kind of impact is that going to have on my <laughs> work-life balance and um, your ability to get to work? And I just think that, um, you know, a good example of that is that we went to the Pride, uh, Pride Football Day. I went down to support it and I think that, you know, me playing my competitive streak comes out and, um, you know, I'll end up doing something I shouldn't, you know, running too fast for a ball or turning too quickly and that is the end of it. So it's, um, it's just not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so let me go a little bit further into the background just so everyone's got a full clear picture or a good clear picture anyway, but you're currently the head of women's football, but it feels like you do so many more things other than just that role. As a Matilda, you had 76 appearances debuting in New Zealand in 2004, which was a good amount of time ago. Um, and you were also part of the 2010 AFC Women's Asian Cup 
winning team, which is a, a massive event. Do you have any fond or specifically fond memories of the celebrations the night after that event? Oh, again, I was actually injured that day. I think I was sitting on the sideline. Um, are you talking about Asian Cup 2010? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully, you still celebrated. Yeah, we did. I, I, my knee was in a bit of, it was in bad shape. And I remember Lisa Devana was injured as well. So at least I wasn't alone on the crutches. But, um, you know, we had this young squad. That's when Semi Kerr and Kaya Simon and all these players that, you know, are now stalwarts of the game, you know, really stood up and, and won that game for the team. So, um, you know, I, it's such a long time ago. But I actually think we didn't realise what we'd done when we'd done it at the time. And I think that's usually the way you know, you're in it, you're in the thick of it. And obviously, you know, how many years on uh, thinking and reflecting back as an older player, well, actually, it's quite difficult to win an Asian Cup. Yeah. <laughs> with, with teams where we should have, you know, Asia is super competitive and the less developed nations are only getting, are only progressing in a, in a lot quicker fashion. So um, it was a moment in time that, you know, it, it's awfully difficult to, to repeat. I remember reading a while ago, and I can't remember the title of the book, but I certainly remember the author. It was Bridie O'Donnell, who was a competitive cyclist for many years, and she's currently the um, head of sport and recreation for Victoria. And Bridie's just an amazing storyteller, I think. And one of the things that she said in her book is that as a professional cyclist, and I can imagine as a, um, a professional footballer, you have to be okay with losing as well, because losing happens much more frequently and than winning. And as much as 2010, the Women's Asian Cup was a long time ago, it takes a long time till the next, you know, massive levels of success and, and whatnot too. So certainly won't be put that one on the shelf anytime soon nor will we put on the shelf that you were in the w league title in 2009 to 2010 playing for sydney fc but you also played for the western sydney wanderers and then overseas you played for sky blue so anyway that is um we'll call you our sarah walsh because it feels like you know everyone supports you and everyone cheers you on and it feels like you know our hearts go out with you as well when you've been out on the pitch so it's very exciting again to have you here Let's get into some good old questions, I suppose. Most recently, so we'll go a little bit um, front to back, but most recently you appeared for International Women's Day. And one of the things that you discussed was imposter syndrome at the Future Women Leadership Summit. I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on that, not necessarily, well, a little bit maybe on imposter syndrome if people aren't familiar with it, but also what you covered and, you know, for us, surely someone like yourself couldn't be carrying too much of that around. Well, it's a, it's a really good segue into it because it's it's quite the contrary. You know, people like Serena Williams um, experience it. And, you know, I think that the conversation around it um, always crops up during International Women's Day because, uh, you know, there is a lot of research out there to say that um, it happens more so within women. And, and obviously I'll just go into it. So it refers to an internal experience of believing that you're not as confident as others perceive you to be. That's the technical um, piece to it. So it's not, um, it's not uh, limited to, to women. Um, however, it happens more to women. I think uh, when you think about, um, you know, the external factors, uh, sometimes women being looked over for roles, um, you know, 
this this uh, lack of, you know, most more often than not in some industries, women will be the only um, person there representing their gender, which can obviously impact confidence. So there's all these situations that women find themselves in um, that that obviously, you know, uh, have an impact on confidence, which then bring in their self-doubt. So um, for me, it's, uh, and it's and there's actually a strong link uh, between imposter syndrome and um, high performers and high achievers because they often put set out these lofty goals that are somewhat um, unachievable, but that's how you know the great become great. They set they keep setting themselves targets. Um, but imposter syndrome is a likely uh, you know a result of uh, not being able to achieve those those goals that are set out uh, by the person themselves. So. There's that link to it as well. Um, but uh, for me, um, I'm not sure if you listen to the panel, I actually, when I look back at my playing career, I most definitely felt that, uh, you know, it's quite a surreal feeling to play for your country and then to do it 70 times. Um, and I think my injuries uh, created a, another layer to, you know, I literally didn't know when I was going to play my last game. So literally every single game that I played, including my first one, I thought was my last. So actually a really lovely way to play the game because I literally remember every single one of those games. So it's it's that feeling of um, not feeling like you belong um, and, and you feel like, you know, someone is going to call you out as a fraud. That's, they're the conversations around imposter syndrome. So um, for me, you know, there was a transition into sports administration because I hadn't been in, in the business world, although I had a business degree that I'd finished whilst I was playing. You think that you 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 know you've lost all this time uh, understanding how business operates, understanding how people should operate in a business. Um, you know, I think it took me a good four or five years to really feel felt like feel like I belong there and really start to um, accept and also kind of embrace the leadership uh, and and team kind of. Uh, I guess skill sets that I'd learned through twenty years in the game. Um, you really can't. I guess, uh, you know, you really can't um, uh, take account for that because it's, it's something that I carry with me every day, thinking about how a collective group of people can work together for a common goal when, when you're a bunch of individuals is um, something that you learn innately as a, as a player, particularly when you go to a World Cup, right? You know, sometimes your individual goals will have to sit behind the team for everybody to succeed. So all these things that, you know, the current Matildas need to, um, I think have a really good grasp on what what is really valuable for them and how those skills are very transferable when they finish playing. Um, I think there's not enough discussion about that because, yeah, for a long time I did feel like an imposter. We'll make sure that we include those links in the show notes as well when the pod goes live, just so people can have a look at the the longer segment. And I think it was, there were three of them that came out on International Women's Day. I can't remember, yours was maybe roughly about 50 minutes or an hour or something, but definitely well worth listening to. Um, just throw to the guys a little bit, because I don't want to keep them silent for too long. But Dale, did you have any, and we know that it's not purely gender-based. Um, we know that it's much more as well she said it's much more significant in women but it does affect men as well yeah i I totally agree with what she said i know that having worked in sports media as well um i remember a number of times coming up um 
not coming up against, but deal, dealing with young women, especially young women who have just gotten into their roles, who have this fear of, I mean, being judged is almost too pedestrian about it. Like the judgment is not the, the issue. The judgment is kind of within yourself. As you say, while she like, you're all these people who, who suffer with this and, and struggle with this imposter syndrome, the, the harshest critic is always yourself. And as you say, like people who have been high achievers, whether that's in the business world or the sport world, or whether that's, you know, in, in any walk of life, they're always the harshest critic of themselves. As I said, I remember, um, working with and working alongside young women who have just come into the space that I was working in and the the amount of kind of second guessing that they would do to themselves was always um, really apparent and it was always something that as a kind of senior person in that role that you would try to help them with but it, it's I always find it fascinating about the kind of psychology of people who are in that high performance role or people who are high performers who still even even after they leave those roles still second guess themselves and I, I i would love to read further on like what that comes down what like where that comes from because obviously like the the thing about embarrassment and the thing about considering yourself a fraud is that it's a it's a social it's a social phenomenon we've evolved to be this way because we know that if we step outside our comfort zone or if we step outside what society considers acceptable then then we're shunned and we don't want to be the person who's shunned because we're not good at what we do or we're not good enough for the role or anything like that so it's it's fascinating as you said while she's a here from a high performance individual that it 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 doesn't just you know it doesn't just affect the 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 you know junior up-and-coming sports writer or the person who's just come into their role um wherever they are it's it's fascinating to hear that it's it's most prevalent among um among high performance individuals yeah, it's, it's fascinating because, um, you know, I say all that, but I had a great deal of confidence as well. So, mm. you know, those two things are not mutually exclusive because um, you have to have confidence to stay at that level. I think it's one thing to get there. It's another thing to stay at that level. Um, but it's also been linked to perfectionism as well. So, you know, you can't have one without the other. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think in small doses, it's not a bad thing because it's a thing that drives you to, to be better if you are a high achiever. But I think, I think there's internal and external factors because if you think about the level that, that some women are critiqued, uh, or more often than not in our industry, um, particularly you know, globally, you'll be, the oft- you'll be the only woman in the room. So think about that. That's, you know, if you're the only woman in the room, you're not only doing your job, you're actually representing a gender. Mm. That's a lot to carry. Yeah. So you know, for women who might uh, reflect and, and you know, have their confidence um, you know, diminished in those situations. And then think about intersectionality, right? You know, you're thinking about having the only Indigenous person in the room. They're not just there uh, because of what they deliver through their, their work. Uh, people often see them as a representation of a broader community, and that's a lot for one to carry. So more often than not, um, you know, men uh, don't find themselves in those situations, so don't really have to think about these things. Um, and I'm wondering if that plays out a little bit. It's really interesting having been in the media box for so many W League matches and even Matilda's matches around the world and, and stuff. And I know that, you know, I've largely been the only person there when we're in a Melbourne match in, you know, at Amy Park or wherever wherever it might be. And 
it can be a little bit confronting and you need to be a strong enough person to get in there in the first place. Um, but then it's also you need to ideally support other people in those situations as well. And that support is really tricky because I think you need to be really genuine and authentic when you do it. You can't just say you're being amazing when a little bit of um, feedback about improvement can also show them that you see that they're not at, at the next level. So I think in supporting them rather than just saying everything's amazing, I think is quite important. Yeah. And I remember one story when we were, I can't remember where it was, maybe it was at the 2014 Asian Cup in Vietnam, if I'm making up the, the date and the place correctly. And there was a bunch of us from the old, the women's game days with um, Anne Odong was there and I think Sarah Grube and whatnot as well. And we'd done our research, we head off to the tournament and, you know, we would have other journalists coming up to us and say, which one's Lisa Devanna? Or I can't remember if Lisa was there, but, you know, you get the kind of position that these people are in those roles and they feel confident enough to be able to cover it. And there was one big journalist that I remember not knowing enough about it, but he said, I don't need to know about the player names. I just write about the result, that kind of thing. And yeah, so I think not to put anyone down by any stretch, but to lift ourselves up as well and recognize that we do have skills and we do have knowledge and those things are really valuable. Probably a quick segue as well for someone who does have knowledge. We've got Eric Subijano, who's probably biting to ask a question as well. And Eric is renowned, particularly around the New South Wales area, just for his knowledge of football. Do you have a question for Walshy coming out there, Eric? Just wanted to echo her thoughts about imposter syndrome. It's, I mean, I won't name names, but... I have heard it expressed by some very brilliant minds, brilliant footballing minds. I think it's just important that we continue to build people's confidence in that situation. I think I'm privileged, not just in terms of being a male, but I have uh, what some people might call excessive levels of confidence. And so it's important to uh, recognize not everyone's the same and to so, um, you know, support these young women coming through wherever I can. I think yeah. it's about creating inclusive environments. Um, you know, when, when there is a woman in the room that she's not representing her gender, she's there because she's capable and competent. Um, you know, she's not there to represent the views of 50% of the population. And I think that plays out in, in many different ways. So I think a lot of these external factors that we're talking about are societal, long-term cultural change. Um, but then again, yeah, um, you know, and I think to be, to be really honest, I think women are critiqued at a high level. So there is this sense that you have to do extra when, in fact, we just want them to do their jobs and, and change the system um, to allow them to fit into the system. Legacy 23. That's, that's been some big news recently, and we have talked about it already, We've um, but we're really keen to probably get a little bit more detail. I think for, for me, a couple of the key things of Legacy 23, because it is built around the World Cup, is how are we collaborating with New Zealand, which is a cross-confederation kind of thing? What's the first thing that we can see? And where are we leaders already that we can help um, other developing nations? So it's probably a, a fair few questions there, but jump on to any which one you want and I'll pick up the other one. Yeah, I'll probably talk to Legacy because that's, um, you know, that's, that's the, the big piece of work at the moment that underpins everything that we do. Um, I assume you, that you've read the 11 principles and in a way we have developed Legacy um, to be able to fast track and accelerate a lot of the work that we have called out in the principles, particularly principle 10. 
um, you know, which is centered around women and girls. So I think that um, there's five five pillars um, that I'll talk to. So I'll go through them, participation pillar, uh, the leadership and development pillar, community facility pillar, high performance pillar, and tourism and international engagement pillar. Um, we have shaped um, our legacy around supporting the federal government at this stage because we're in close conversations uh, with the government to be able to um, you know, support and sponsor us through this journey. Um, and uh, we believe that we've built out a plan that will not only deliver really great outcomes for our sport, and that's women and men's part of the games, uh, we believe that we can support the government through, you know, economic recovery and also social recovery. Um, because if you think about, you know, communities, uh, football is at the forefront of being able to deliver real outcomes. We have 2,500 um, community clubs. We also have, uh, you know, 2 million participants. So we believe that, you know, these five pillars that we've drawn out um, will help us, I guess, drive the game to, to where it needs to be, but also be at the forefront of, um, you know, this this uh, post-pandemic era where we're trying to you know, recover economically and socially from the pandemic. In terms of the collaboration with any anything with New Zealand football, has there been anything that crosses the water that we can be stronger in doing it together? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, we're working closely with them at the moment in terms of um, setting up the FIFA entity, but we also have an MOU with, with New Zealand football. And I think as we, as we uh, you know, take this journey with New Zealand to 2023, um, we obviously will start to evolve that MOU and start to think about how we can um, deliver real meaningful outcomes together, but also um, throughout our confederations. Uh, and I might just touch on a couple of the, the pillars in relation to that. So the leadership and development pillar um, is really focused and centred around getting more women and girls in the game and particularly women into decision-making roles. Um, and we've really thought about, you know, the, the types of potential system change work that we'll need to tackle, but also the programmatic work. So what I mean by that is thinking about, um, you know, how flexible our coaching courses are or thinking about the way that we have set up some of our structures within the game. Are they conducive to the timing for women? Um, do we have female instructors? You know, what do we look like when we advertise a, a coaching conference? All these things, um, new levers we want to try, try to pull to be able to, um, you know, signal to women that we're a game for women and we want you, we want you, uh, you know, playing bigger roles than just playing. So, um, and, and aside to that, we'll look at delivering, uh, you know, these programs that are designed to support and mentor, um, you know, the talented women, coaches, referees, uh, administrators and executives across the game. Uh, and then we're thinking about education on top of that. So how do we educate the leaders in our game? Uh, thinking about uh, state federations, uh, along with Football Australia and our clubs, to think about, okay, well, what are the barriers and how do we, how do we truly understand this? Uh, at the levels that matter so we can start to make the changes that are required. So um, there's a lot of thought that's gone into that, um, but we definitely want to, you know, start to increase the number of women. But I think you just need to look at coaching, the advanced accredited courses. Uh, we only have 5% uh, 
of our, our total coaches are female. We really want to drive that to 50% by 2027. One of the two key things I look at is as well are around the facilities and the lack of facilities. And it tends to be that when we have facilities and the bookings for them, it, it's not that it's in favour of men, it just that it, it tends to be that there's not enough and, and it will inadvertently favour men just because they've got more teams. Um, the other thing is probably around we're talking g- gender diversity but we also need to look maybe a little bit broader than that and I'm sure it's covered in legacy 23 and in the principles as well but you know football can be demographically it can be very white and that's something that it'd be terrific to address as well just because of you know the variety of people that we have in Australia and and the, the wealth of everything multicultural that can be just such a benefit to society and to the game yeah well, we are actually naturally and organically a very multicultural sport. You think about the, the newly arrived uh, refugees um, and these communities who turn up with the football. Um, I think we need to do a better job as a game um, at facilitating and supporting those existing communities to kind of run their own games, um, to run their own communities. It's not about um, setting them up with the current ones. It's actually expanding what we actually see as you know the current system so thinking about um, these areas and how we start to target these areas and a lot of these community clubs do an amazing job already at um, engaging and integrating um, you know what's what's happening within these these communities and making sure that they're putting their arms around them I think we need to do a better job as a national body to to start to facilitate those conversations a a bit more someone like settlement services uh, international, they, they do a great job at, um, you know, uh, making sure that these families have exactly what they need at a very granular level before they're even thinking about football. When you think about how we use football as a vehicle to um, better integrate these communities so we can have a, you know, a more diverse, broad um, connection with them. Uh, I think on the community facilities piece, Cheryl, you, might, you raise a really good point and you know, if we're by uh, reaching gender equality in participation by 2027, uh, we're going to need an extra 400,000 women and girls opportunities for them to play. So, you know, if you think about community facilities, uh, there's two parts to it. We're going to need more places to play. That's just that's just fact. Uh, we simply don't have the number of um, pitches right now. However, also the current pitches that we have, we need to make better use of better use of them. So if you think about just something as simple as lighting, um, more often than not, the women and girls might be on the backfields. Um, and by having better lighting, we can actually play for longer and make you know better use of what we currently have. Um, obviously, uh, having the amenities and, and change rooms that um, provide opportunity for both our men's and women's teams is, is a very important piece because you know, if we're going to get these extra women and girls playing, uh, we need to kind of rethink what opportunity and accessibility looks like within each of the clubs as well. So um, there's a lot of work to do. We've got club development programs we want to deliver through this to start to talk about these these issues and challenges. Um, You know, what is the experience of a young girl when she turns up? Is that equal to the the five-year-old boy that turns up, you know, are they getting the correct sizes for their uniforms? Do they feel like they're actually a part of the club? 
you know, they, this next generation of young girls and parents um, know what good looks like. Um, our sport really needs to be at the forefront of this change. I love it. I think you just brought up some some beautiful points and I really love all of those. I'm being cheeky when I say I think the best point was when you said that I've got a good point. I think that should be the end of the pod. I have to agree. Uh, it's been great. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, I just want to echo what Sarah's saying around two two things, around the immigration, like recent immigration and recent immigrants to Australia, it's one thing that always astounds me that other codes, specifically other football codes, do really, really well is, um, I hate this term, but like activations around especially young migrant families. Um, but it's one thing that football has a massive advantage over. I mean, we all remember Kevin Sheedy's infamous comments regarding people who come here uh, have always had football as their first game. And long may that continue, but it is, it is really interesting. Um, I've had experiences working uh, and um, dealing with people who, who are recent uh, refugee arrivals. And the first thing that they always have, as you say, is football. And, and the, the interesting thing is that a um, uh, fr- friend of the pod um, who will remain nameless, her uh, mum, I remember her telling us stories about um, uh, when the Kosovar kids came here in the nineties, um, they had never really experienced play aside from like playing sport um, and to have um, when they came here to have like uh, the police and, you know, the defense services when they were um, basically barracked at Holsworthy um, to have them playing with these kids was amazing. And out of those, some of those refugee kids, we had players who came through the A-League, players like Labano Halidi, who was among those Kosovar refugees when he first came to Australia. And you have players like Ali Abbas, who came here as a refugee from the Iraqi Olympic team. And, and as you say, um, Sarah, like these, these generations of migrants, when, whether they were like Italians in the 50s and 60s, Vietnamese in the 70s, um, you know, Chinese migrants um, through the 80s and 90s. And now we're seeing like South Sudanese, Afghani, Syrian kids coming through um, from all these different parts of the world. And we see that in the A-League. And it's, it, it will be interesting to see in the coming years how that follows through with the W-League because obviously there is a, 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 a divide when it comes to, say, gender roles in those communities. But it is, it is something that football has a distinct advantage in, in that we as a game are already the language of these people and they would have grown up whether they were in refugee camps or whether they were just living in cities outside of, outside of Australia, we would have been the only sport that they would have known. They would never would have known about cricket. They never would have known about AFL. They like these kids would have grown up kicking a ball around in their, in their backyard, wherever that was. So we as a game have so much to do when it comes to integrating those kids. And the second thing that I just wanted to mention was while she, as a, uh, a daughter of the MacArthur region yourself, um, you would know that there's all this like greenfielding going out uh, around like Camden and Campbelltown and all those like pop town suburban areas that are now popping up. And it's really, really impressive to see when these sports fields are being built, that they're being built properly they're being built with equal change rooms for men and women they're being built with heaps of lights they're being built to play multiple sports on and they're being built to play multiple sports on at night and as you say the more that we can um make the game flexible especially as players get older and they take on different roles in the family and the workplace then um the more we'll be able to retain players the longer they go into their footballing career in inverted commas because i know that i as a 32 year old man do not definitely do not consider my football a career 
but I'm sure we understand what I'm talking about. If, if we can play games on like a Friday night or a Sunday, early Sunday morning or a Thursday night, it just allows more people and specifically more women who have, you know, different schedules to, to play the game. And the, the more women that we can keep in the game after the age of like 14 or 16, the better the, 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 uh, the gender equality will be, in my opinion, at least. I agree. We've, we've actually started a, a couple of uh, new national programs I'm not sure you know about, but um, Soccer Mums, which was designed initially uh, with Vic Health and Football Victoria. And uh, they had an amazing job at setting up this concept that we're now taking nationally, um, where basically it's just pick up a ball and, um, you know, it's this influencer model where, you know, women who just want to play with women um, just for fun and socially can pick up and play. You know, it's basically just pick up football. Um, it's a really good example. In terms of the multicultural element, we've actually also started a program, which you may have seen um, Football Queensland delivered during Female Football Week. And there were 50 uh, women from culturally uh, and linguistically diverse communities who played pick up together. And that's literally just started. So there were 50 women um, they got together and this is just you can imagine where this is going to go it's really just uh, creating spaces for them building our own understanding as to what their needs are um, and facilitating because you know a lot of these things don't need to be delivered by the national body it's actually creating a safe space for, for people to experiment and think about work out what what they like and I can only imagine that is going to grow and grow and grow and I think these small social programs um, that you, that you, like you said, Dale, we need to create greater flexibility. And that's super important in the, the cold community because, you know, that's women um, delivering football for women um, with us standing back and facilitating their needs from afar. So it's, um, it's really just, you know, allowing these, creating these spaces for them to deliver our own football. I don't want to hold you up forever and ever because I'm sure you'll need to go off soon, but I've got some maybe gentler questions or a little bit more fun as well. Um, thoughts on Bubs still being back out there in goals for in the W League, and, and I'm surprised sometimes that she doesn't go out into the outfield. I know she likes a bit of a run as well, but how amazing is that to see her be out there, but not just out there doing an amazing job? Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, Bubs is a... Uh, you know, one of those characters that everybody loves. Um, and so the fact that she's still playing, um, I just find it fascinating. She still has the drive to go to training uh, that many times a week because, you know, you either have it or you don't. Um, and yeah. she obviously still has it, uh, which I think is fantastic. And not only that, she's a mother of young Holly. I think it sends the right message to, uh, particularly to our younger generation who, you know, might be starting their careers to, you know, I think it's so important that women have choice. Um, I'm obviously leading into Katrina Gorey at the moment, but I think it's, you know, this is a really great, fantastic message that we're sending to women that we're, we're going to support you. We're going to build the structures um, that you need to, you know, to be able to come back to play after having a family. And, you know, Bubs typifies that. She's, uh, she's done a really great job. I absolutely love watching her play. And the other thing I wanted to jump into is in the year that you won the W League title, I've just gone through and had a look at the the players who were in in and around sort of certainly the two teams that played. But so there was yourself. We've got Lena Kamas at the other end who is still playing as well. So she's, you know, maybe doesn't have quite the same number of years as what Bubs does, but she's still got, I mean, you can see the intensity and the drive in her eyes anytime she gets out on the park. But then there's Catherine Canulli 
who's doing a great job. And I think, you know, she's been on, on the bench. Is she assistant coach for years and years for the Wanderers? And I, I think, you know, that's something that's growing for her. Are there other players that um, are still out there doing as much as what you're doing or they're, they're leading in different ways that we may not have heard of? Heather Garriott being another one, but in terms of the other players as well. Yeah, the first one that comes to mind is Catherine Gill. Um, she's doing an absolutely fantastic job with the PFA. Um, look, I think she's super, super professional, um, wildly capable uh, and competent. Um, that's why she was put into the CEO role um, with Bo there. So, look, I, I yeah, I, I mean, uh, Katie and I played, we debuted for Australia together with Lisa Devana up in Brisbane. I'll never forget that. So, literally, we started our journey together and, Went on the journey together, um, you know, I think we played up top as a three for a good eight years. So, um, you know, to be to be still kind of working with Katie, Catherine, so I have to pinch myself. So I'm awfully proud to be able to work with Catherine in, in the role that she's in. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's plenty more. Look at Leah Blaney, um, as you said, Heather Garriock, who jumped ship. I'm sure she'll be back at some point. But, um, you know, there's no surprise that these amazing women who excelled in the sporting field, um, you know, were able to transfer those leadership qualities and skills over into another professional, the same profession in a different way. So uh, there's plenty more. Um, and I think that, you know, the more that we can get um, contributing back to the game, um, the better the game will be. I feel like you guys should have your own podcast. If you could get Catherine Gill, Lisa Devanna, yourself out there on a podcast, everyone would listen and we wouldn't need ours anymore. But we should let you go pretty soon. I'm going to throw to the guys and maybe ask them if they wanted to ask one more question each. Eric, did you want to throw in a question? Uh, just going back to, you know, the players you're teammates with and they're doing all these wonderful things now, both um, inside football or outside football, as is the case with Heather Garrick, a big role as Taekwondo Australia CEO. When you were teammates, did you see that coming? Did you have a sense, you know, Heather Garrick's going to be a CEO of another another sport, or you know, Catherine Catherine could always go into going going to go into coaching stuff like that? Uh, it's not something that I thought about as a player. I always um, no, just to answer that in short, absolutely not. But I'm not surprised after the fact because we're pretty determined, <laughs> um, and Heather being at the top end of that. Um, if you if you saw how she plays, I'm pretty sure that's how she administers the the game of taekwondo. It's um, with all of her heart on a sleeve and uh, with a great deal of passion and energy. So, um, and, and I could say the same about um, Catherine Gill. So, um, it's kind of no surprise when it happens. Um, I think that you know the more the more we can get uh, the players involved, as I said. I think there's just that bridging gap around how you transfer it. And I think as a game, we probably need to do a better job. Good question, Eric. Yeah, my, my, my question was going to be around um, about around uh, the years prior to the W League. I was looking up this week because I had um, a few spare moments. I was looking at players, players who are still playing in the W League who were playing in the old WNSL. And there there's were only... Yeah, I was actually quite can surprised. I, can I try guess? Shoot. Oh, go. No, I've set myself up here. Is it Claire Polk now? Polk yep, was there. Like yep. Uh, Bubs, Melissa yep. Barbieri. Bubs was there. for um, Vic, what are they called? Uh, Vic Vision, I think. Vic Vision, yeah. gosh. Do you know uh, Bubs defended me once? She used to play in the back line. 
Mm. I remember hearing stories about her playing for playing out on the field for I think Heidelberg. Yeah, um, and the other one that I was uh, uh, not amazed but surprised by was Kim Carroll. Um, oh, wow. It it the the reason that I looked it up I was thinking of because obviously Ad, um, Brisbane and Adelaide and Polks had the one fifty shirts uh, this week celebrating her incredible achievement, um, and I was thinking back to prior to the W League. Obviously, the dub was my first exposure to to women's football, but um, it amazed me learning that like Polks was playing in the WNSL in two thousand and four. Um, so I would I would love to know. Um, going forward like whether like when we will start kind of or will we start um like integrating those uh results into the w league like they do with the nsl and the a league i'd, I'd love to love to see that happen you should look into it i have mm. some great stories about claire polkinghorn i remember when um i don't know what year this was or how old she was i'm pretty sure she was 15 16 but she was baby faced and tom samani um had her man mark abby wombat um, and Claire followed her to have a drink at the um, over at her. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and we're like, where are you going? <laughs> she took Just doing my job. Her, Just hanging out. Leave her. But actually, she played her out of the game. I'll never forget it. That, that's the, the beauty of all that. She was mm. uh, tenacious even back then and could definitely follow instruction. So, um, you know, it's. It's so nice that I was there when she was a baby and now she's with about 150 cats and, um, you know, she'll, she'll go down in history as one of our greatest, I think. Mm. One of the, one of the, I know that uh, in the, in the men's game, it was Ryan Grant's 200th last week. Um, and one of the, one of the things that I always uh, think when, when it comes to the dub is how many of these women would be three or 400 gamers in a, in a longer season. But then again, I don't think we would have as many players, playing as many seasons if they were playing as many games but yeah as you said it i i will uh maybe that can be my project for the rest of the w league season look into uh match reports from the old wnsl i think you've just got yourself a project oh, I, I don't like that i've done this to myself <laughs> I, I love that you've signed yourself up for that sarah walsh thank you very much for joining us on the podcast it's been so so much fun just to listen to some stories and, and listen to the the wisdom that you have around the game. I, I've really enjoyed it. I do hope that so many of the the players that we have now have journeys to to replicate yours as well. I think, you know, that's the, the best legacy that we can have is you're paving the way for so many people who can come along and do even, even more and level up women's football in Australia. And it will be an exciting journey. So thank you very much from all of the Beyond 90 crew. Thank you for having me all. It's been fun. 